Good morning. Morning. Good to see everybody here today. I hope you had a good 4th of July celebration with a holiday right in the middle of the week. It was really cool how confused employers were. Um, they didn't know whether to give days off before or after the 4th of July. So a lot of people I know got kind of an unintentional week off. It's not a bad deal. In fact, maybe we ought to put the 4th of July always midweek so that people get mostly a week off. Anyway, hope you had a good time. We are going to be looking at a story today that comes from one of the historical books in the Old Testament. It's a book called Second Kings that studies the kings of the divided nation of Israel and Judah. And this is the story of the kings of Israel. And in the midst of this story is one of these narratives that goes a long ways toward bolstering my confidence in Scripture. There's a lot of different ways that we can be convinced that the Scripture is the Word of God. One is, you know, we take it as the Word of God. We, we live in obedience and, and harmony with what the Scripture teaches. And generally speaking, uh, I think our sense of peace and well-being is deeper. Our sense of connectedness to God and to those around us is deeper, and that's all, that's all good. There's another side of the proofs that make Scripture convincing, and that's that, uh, like when I was in college, there were all these skeptics, and they'd say, well, there was never any such thing as a King David. And for years, like when I was in college in the 70s, they were teaching in, in colleges and in seminaries some places that was a capitulation to culture that um, King David never existed. Then about 10, 15 years ago, they were digging up some rocks in the desert, and they found this thing called a cuneiform, which is a marker where historical accounts are made, and it's usually on a triangular or square piece of stone, and it's carved in, and generally it was written in all the known languages so that you might have three or four different languages on one rock describing a historical event. Does that make sense? And somebody who's digging in the desert found one of those and said, oh, this guy named David came through, kicked our butts. I'm the only one that lived, and watch out for David and his bunch. Uh, they, they've got God on their side or something. So anyway, that, that what happened is this, this, form, this stone was found, and then the, all the great scholars who were trying to convince people that David never existed went, oops, and retracted. So uh, historical records we find in archaeology are, are pretty good. Another thing is when Scripture just rings true to the nature of things and it's honest. And one of the things about the narratives of the Old Testament and New Testament, even if they're sometimes grisly and hard to synchronize, is that they are so real. And such is the case today with this fellow we're going to meet, who's a very highly placed general in the army of Aram. And Aram is what, it was Babylon, it's what we think of as Iraq, and partly Syria today was Iran. And it was, a, it was a big, big, forceful power, and there was a general that served in that nation. His name was Naaman, and Naaman is one of these characters that just comes out of the blue in the Scripture. He happens, and he happens in 14 verses and then goes away. But in that 14 verses, I think we get a pretty significant story that we can use. Uh, and, and I'm going to tell you, listen in here for the fact that God loves everybody passionately. You know, it, you, if you read the story, you get the feeling, A, God knows everybody, therefore God knows me. And God loves everyone and wants to make himself available to every human being, not to just a special group of people. And Naaman becomes this, this 
flagship story for the fact that God lives every, loves everyone, and even though we're terps, he's pursuing us with his love and grace. And this is a, this is a very, very wonderful thing. And to me, that authenticates scripture, is that the people that we see in the New and Old Testament that are followers of God, they aren't perfect. In fact, the scripture could be called God's triumphs, human mistakes, I think. You know, the, the chronicle of human goofs, man's attempt to run from God. I don't know what your humanity's attempt to run from God. I don't know what you call it, but here we go to the story of Naaman. We're going to find out some stuff about him, and I think it may encourage us in our own spiritual pursuits and have us thinking about how much God treasures everyone, no matter how far away they may seem to be from God or from the faith. So here's the story. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. This guy's got it all in the ball, comma, but he had leprosy. And you all know what a mark leprosy was in that culture and time. You were considered unclean. You were to be kept apart from everybody else. You couldn't really belong. You, you, you could get this far toward belonging, but at the end of the day, you're unclean. There's something wrong with you. Uh, if you're, you know, you don't stick out your hand when it's covered with leprosy and shake hands with the, with the folks you meet. It's a, it's a difficult disease. So he has this. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he could cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing, and a letter he took from the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why is this fellow coming to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So now, as this human communication happens, you can't get anything straight in a broken world. The king of Israel now thinks that this is some kind of a setup, a trick to cause a war between the two countries so that Aram would send its armies against Israel because Naaman wasn't healed. So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. <clears throat> I know I'm a leper and all but I am a great warrior and a general from Aram's army. I've got letters, I've got goodies, I've got gifts with me. Um, if Elisha knew who he was dealing with here, he would have jumped off his chair and he'd be out here talking to me. That's what, that's what Naaman's thinking. He's, he's frankly quite insulted. So he went with his horses and chariots and stopped at this door. Then Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure my leprosy. 
In other words, I'm going to be healed. I don't know how God might heal me. Here's how you can heal me. You know, uh, this is this is like a patient going into the operating room and saying, okay, get your instruments out. I'm going to walk you through this, you know. And and so he he hasn't waved his hand over his thought. Abana and Parfar rivers are in Damascus, Tigris and Euphrates. And again, these were great big rivers. And so Naaman's saying, I've got two gigantic rivers in my home of Aram in, in Iraq. Well, why do I need your measly little muddy Jordan River when I've got the Tigris Euphrates? Okay. And couldn't I wash them there and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, this is such an interesting saga. The world back then was like ours. It was full of people that appeared to be near God, people who appeared to be far away from God. People had friends, people had enemies. But by all rights, this man from Aram is an enemy of Israel. We know this because he has a captured Israeli slave working in his household. Um, and, And Naaman is big stuff. But like everybody, he runs into things he can't control. He has leprosy. And that diminishes his honor and stature and obviously threatens his health and longevity. This is a dangerous disease. He was desperate for the silver bullet cure and um, thought he had some ideas how to do that. And Naaman gets permission from his king to go do this. The king sends a letter, and even that letter gets confused. So in situations in our life and in our world, when we see God at work, it's very exciting. But there's also confusion around that. You can step back from this and make it a Sunday school story that, oh, this guy goes, he listens, he washes, he gets healed. But look at the tensions in the middle. What's this king of Aram doing? What's this king of Israel doing? Um, what's this prophet doing? And it's, it's a, a big mass of confusion, a ball of confusion. But God steps into the middle of that and intervenes. Now, this healing scene is awesome because when the guy arrives at Elijah's house, again, he's a man of privilege even though he has leprosy, and he's expecting to be treated specially. And Elisha doesn't treat him specially. But God met him in a special way and healed him in spite of that. I think that's very, very cool. This enrages Naaman, by the way, because he wants more status. He wants more acclaim. And, and he's thinking, here I am. I've come all this distance with a letter, got all this money and all these gifts to get healed. Uh, let's see, you've got no prophet, no little jig and waving of the hand to heal me, no incantations, just this stupid, dirty river that looks like a flowing mud bath. And finally, Naaman goes down to the river because he's sort of trapped. He's got the leprosy. He's got his reputation. He's got what people told him to do. Now he's got his servants pressing him. Apparently he had a close enough relationships with his servants that they could approach him, which meant he was probably a very good man and a good leader. But they approach him, 
and pressure him to follow through on what Elisha wants him to do. And so against his will, really, he goes to the river to get healed. This isn't how I'd do it if I were God. How many times do you experience your life and say, this isn't how I would do my life if if I were God? Ever had that go through your mind? (laughs) Um, I occasionally offer God the opportunity to step aside and let me run things, and he just doesn't do that. So here's Naaman. He's standing in this dirty river, one dip, nothing, two dips, nah. and you got to be thinking at this point, it's, oh, sheesh, the whole world's watching. I'm up here doing deep knee bends and splashing this water on myself like a fool, and I look like some sparrow out in a bird bath, and nothing's happened in three, nada, four, ugh. Five, wet, embarrassed, pissed off, no luck. Number six, Naaman thinks, this is six and I'm sick of this. And then for some reason, he goes ahead and follows through, having seen no results, no promise in this. One more dip, no different than the six other ones. And instantaneously, he's gone from a man of rotting flesh to someone with the skin of a child. We've got a lot of new babies here in this church, and I was, I was visiting with Ezra earlier this morning and feeling skin on his face is just perfect. And this is, this is how Naaman was restored. And he's stunned. He is so stunned that he says, I will only serve the God of Israel. And he goes back to Elisha and says, you're special, This place, Israel, is holy ground. So here's the deal. I'm going to leave this crud behind, all these tributes to you. Would it be okay with you, Elisha, if I dug up some of this holy ground and took it with me back to Iraq? So Naaman excavates a bunch of dirt near the place where he was healed. And he takes this sod and dirt and stuff back to build a mound which is usually tributes and worship were done from these mounds. He imported a mound of Israeli dirt to his home country so that on that pile of dirt, he would worship Yahweh, not the gods of the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, because they were dead gods who couldn't answer. The water may be clear, the weather may be bright, but there was nothing efficacious about those rivers. Whereas the river in the land of God, Yahweh's country, healed Naaman. So he actually went and built a temple. You know, it's interesting when when God gets a hold of us and we know that's real, we're willing to do a whole lot of stuff to stay faithful to that and demonstrate that. And this is a wonderful demonstration of devotion and conversion that Naaman wants to build this temple. So I guess a couple of things I take away from this text are that There's only one God, the God of all gods. He made us. But while there's only one God and there's only one way of God in Jesus, Jesus has got huge arms. God has a deep, passionate love for every single creature, every single person, every single human being. You know, I'm I'm tired of living in a country where if you're in public life and you're a Christian, but you belong to the Democratic Party, you can't be a Christian. Or if you're in public life, 
and you're a Republican, you can't possibly be a Christian. I hear people saying this kind of stuff and determining, based on what party you vote for in one stupid country at one point in time on the map of the world, great country, greatest country in the world right now, but still one stupid country compared to God's holy kingdom that's forever and ever and ever. And um, we see here that the God of all gods has arms big enough to invite every single human being into his presence, to embrace people, to heal, and to bring, to bring flourishing. And if God tells you to do something, obey. Think, think about this. I, and I don't want anybody here to get weird or anything. Please don't get weird. But if God told you to drive to Gray's Harbor, I'm thinking of the dirtiest river I can think of in Washington, and dip yourself in the Wishkaw River in Aberdeen seven times in public, would you do it? A lot of us wouldn't. A few of us would. A few of us would probably do it too early, you know, and and too quickly, and, and that's where people sometimes get into spiritual nonsense. But if God asks us to do something, a faithful response is to do it, and you never know what God's going to produce out of that. And the other thing I was going to say here is don't give up on anybody that's in your life that you know that's far away from the Lord. The worst mass murderer that's waiting on death row can come to Jesus and go to heaven. The worst political enemy, uh, a butcher of people in some third world uh, hellhole, come to God, turn his life over, and experience eternity. There is nobody that's beyond God's capacity to touch, to save, and to heal. And, and this text reminds us of that. And it reminds us of little steps that bring people along. And I think that's another reason why I like this story. It, it hints at how somebody that's outside the faith is brought into the faith. I, I got a friend who's a very, very wealthy man. And there's very, and he's tough. Very few things would make this man uh, cry or be in distress. Family problems, nothing else. But he has a real soft spot for rescued golden retrievers. And literally, he rescues golden retrievers from like China and flies them over here, spends thousands of dollars on them with a vet, and, and adopts them, three or four golden retrievers at a time, his goal is to give that, that dog a good life until it leaves this world. And that's, I thought that was a little excessive, but I kind of like it. And golden retrievers are the nicest animal in the world. Anyway, I really like them, especially the puppies. Just, I just like, get all gaga when I see a puppy. But anyway, this friend of mine has this dog, and the dog's name is Lafayette. Lafayette would, was terribly abused in China, was actually possibly going to be eaten, and they rescued him. But he turned out that he had cancer, and apparently there's heart cancer and these cancers that are affecting uh, golden retrievers around the world. because It's a breeding issue. So anyway, he calls me and says, I desperately need you to pray that Lafayette will live. And this friend had said to me, I don't believe in God, I think we're all like cows. We live, we die, we go back in the ground, and more cows are born. That's what he was saying two years ago. 
Well, we prayed for Lafayette, and I felt kind of dumb, but the Lord, it felt like the Lord said, Randy, pray for Lafayette, and I did. And my friend calls me, Randy, you won't believe this. The, the, the tumor went away, this is about five, six months ago, and Lafayette's still here. And by the way, you really messed with my head. You've been telling me about this Jesus thing for 45 years, and I've ignored you, and your Jesus healed my dog. And I can now not deny the existence of God because God rescued this animal. I said, cool. And they asked me to come and do a blessing on their new house. And uh, this guy who has been completely against God and anything that resembled God and God's way his whole life is now saying, I believe there's something to that. And I don't think this life ends here. And Randy, I think I've got some amends to make because... I think this life can end in a bad direction or a good direction. I want mine to go in a good direction. I was just blown away how God can use almost anything to get someone's attention and call them to himself. So, folks, let's name our namens and let's believe for some of the people around us that seem so far away. And let's, let's love them close. Before we go to the Lord's table this morning, uh, I do want to share that uh, Mark Bone passed away uh, toward the end of this week. Mark and Diane usually sit over here. Uh, their daughter, Polly, and Steve McCloskey and granddaughter, Maya, uh, lost grandpa this week. Uh, Mark passed away after a long struggle with uh, memory loss issues and other health problems. He went in a fairly steep decline, and he's now with the Lord. And he'll be sharing in communion with us today. He's part of that great cloud of witnesses that represent all Christians in all times and all places uh, that come to this table with us. We celebrate the Lord's Supper with each other and with all Christians of all time. And so uh, we'll, we'll, in our opening prayer, pray for Diane and the family and uh, for you. Ask God's grace that visits you in, in communion to give you eyes to see the Namans in your world. How about that this morning?